as we sit here trying to process what's going on in the United States now and voting rights under threat and so forth, we can outthink ourselves, but we can also just look at what's going on and see it for what it is and realize that it's a, it's a cold and brutal world out there and we need to take threats that are threats seriously. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. What would you do if you knew that your father fought for the Nazis? For years, Alexander Wolfe harbored this dark family secret. Wolfe, a staff writer for Sports Illustrated for 36 years who lives in Cornwall, Vermont, longed to know more about his family's role in Nazi Germany. Was his father involved in the worst Nazi crimes, including the extermination of Jews? And how did he hide the fact that he was part Jewish himself? How else was his family involved in the war? In 2017, Wolf left Sports Illustrated and moved with his family to Germany to explore these questions and probe his family's secrets. He also wanted to know more about his grandfather, Kurt Wolf, a young publisher who published renowned authors including Franz Kafka and Joseph Roth before fleeing to New York, where he founded Pantheon Books, a highly regarded publishing house. Alex Wolf's tumultuous family story is the subject of his new book, End Papers, a family story of books, war, escape, and home. Wolf is also the author of The Audacity of Hoop, Basketball, and the Age of Obama, as well as a number of other books, and he's the former owner of the semi-pro Vermont basketball team, The Frost Heaves. Alexander Wolf, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. Why did you take early retirement from your job at Sports Illustrated, where many of us have read you with, uh, with great pleasure for years, and moved to Germany to write a book in 2017? Well, the taking early retirement, to be brutally honest, wasn't entirely my call. I mean, I looked around at colleagues at SI, I'd been there 36 years, others in the print business, and uh, I could see that it was being laid waste to. The whole landscape that I'd grown up in, the ability to do long stories that take a lot of time and resources uh, was starting to disappear. And it seemed like the right thing to do, to step away. And um, the idea of, of going to Germany and writing a book like the one I wrote, um, had been in in the back of my mind for a while. And my wife and I looked at our two kids who were just entering high school, and it just seemed like the stars were aligning. Um, I didn't honestly know the material that I'd have at my disposal to play with if I tackled the book project. But very quickly after we got over there and I started to sift through some of the letters and diaries and so forth, it became clear that um, being sent to Ann Arbor to cover a Big Ten basketball game in the middle of February wasn't really going to compare to what I was about to embark on. So let's jump to the central question of the book, and I guess that motivated your um, your journey. And that is, I mean, there are many questions, but a big one is the role that your father played during the Nazi years in Germany. Why did this matter to you in this moment, we you know, in the 2000s? Well, I think it would have mattered to me regardless of our 
current moment. I mean, what wound up happening once I got to Berlin and started to immerse myself in the material is that I, you know, I, I didn't turn myself off from the headlines of what was going on, the German elections in September 2017, uh, Charlottesville, all sorts of things were happening in the world that just underscored what I was curious about. But my dad had always answered any question I posed him about um, what it was like to grow up in Germany during the 20s and 30s and his time in the war. I just didn't ask that many questions. So I felt I was doing this not so much because of any omission on my dad's part, but more just kind of a willful uh, or semi-willful, um, I don't know, putting, putting the blinders on to an extent because I was busy getting on with my own life. And that was a, a way of looking at the world and engaging with the world that my dad had pretty much modeled for me after he became an immigrant. But to circle back to your question, um, so my dad's born in 1921 in Munich. Um, and in 1933, Hitler takes power. And my dad's 12 years old. He has absolutely no agency over this development, none whatsoever. But by the time he graduates from boarding school, he is um, conscripted first into the, the labor service, which was a kind of paramilitary organization, and then in basic training to go join the Luftwaffe and engage in the invasion of the Soviet Union. Um, and these things happened, you know, there was no, there was no bucking that system. This was the, what my dad was conscripted into. And um, I just wanted to know more, not just about what it was like for him, but he did have a father and a mother and a stepmother and a stepfather and a great uncle uh, or my great uncle, his regular uncle. Um, all of whom he was fairly close to, and they all had slightly different roles, historical roles in what was to unspool. And a lot of this I didn't know at the time, but I was curious about it. And look, I'm trained as a journalist. So when we got to Berlin, as much as I was intent on rummaging through the letters and the diaries and read in parallel about the history of the time so I understood context, um, I wasn't gonna put my notebook aside and stop being a journalist. So I was very, keen to absorb what was going on in Germany and in the States and just see what lessons could be drawn. So the result might be a book that um, has one or two more elements than most readers would like, but it, it was what I was called to do. And, and the one thing um, a wise person once told me years ago about writing books is it just has to be your thing. You, nothing else is going to get you to your station every day to, to, to do this unless it's really the, the project you want to do. And in my case, it was not just telling a family story, but framing that story with what was going on in the world today. Well, I can tell you as a reader of end papers, it reads um, like a thriller. Uh, you're, it begins with a mystery, a question, um, you know, asking the question, um, what was the role that he played? Uh, there is the, hint that you might discover something terrible uh, because of all the atrocities that were committed by the Nazis. Um, and you kind of sprinkle breadcrumbs uh, that you're following in your journey, in your journey uh, into uh, Nazi Germany. So one of the things in the book, you have these wonderful historical photos, including one of your father wearing a swastika. And you also describe him donning 
uh, donning a brown shirt and uh, going off with the Hitler Youth. You mentioned he had no agency, so it's useful to recall what was the Hitler Youth? What would a young person, a teenager in in Germany, um, have been confronted with when uh, asked to join this political youth organization? Yeah, um, as I understand it, the boarding school my dad attended, it was, you know, in the same way that you showed up for class or meals or whatever on Wednesday nights, you, unless you were Jewish, and my dad was only quarter Jewish, um, and therefore not considered Jewish enough not to be a member of the Hitler Youth, um, he was expected to to appear at Heimabend on Wednesday nights. Um, Now, if you happen not to be in boarding school where your entire day was spoken for, um, your parents could, could, I suppose, intervene in some way. And my dad's half-brother, Enoch, um, the illegitimate child of my grandfather, um, it turned out that rather than have her son uh, be conscripted into the Hitler Youth, his mother ran down to the Danish consulate because Enoch's father, uh, on, on his birth certificate, said that he was a Danish citizen, um, when in fact it was my grandfather was a German citizen. Um, he was in Copenhagen, this beard, and the fiction was created uh, sufficiently so that Enoch could get out of the Hitler Youth with a phony passport and go off to Copenhagen, where he wrote out the war and ended up settling and marrying a Dane and becoming Danish. Um, but for my father, and I'm sure for many others of his precise generation, um, these decisions were being made for you by parents and Nazi apparatchiks um, around the Third Reich, at least through the 30s, um, when my dad was in boarding school from about 34 through 37. Um, actually, he went into boarding school by the late 30s. So it was more like 36 through 1940, 41. Um, but uh, yeah, very quickly, by the middle of the 30s, uh, the Nazi regime had solidified itself. And you had um, the Hitler Youth, uh, you had the Nuremberg Laws being uh, promulgated in 1935, um, which for my father, because he was a quarter Jewish, um, were a little bit of a... Um, of a relief, believe it or not, because it meant uh, that while he would never be considered part of the German race and nation, um, he was still considered German enough that he could put on a uniform and fight, which meant he would not be sent to a camp. Explain what the Nuremberg Laws did. So in 1935, at a a big Nazi party congress in um, Nuremberg, uh, these laws were announced, the result of all sorts of pseudoscience and um, ruminations that various Nazi ideologists and party functionaries did to try to codify who was Jewish, how Jewish someone was, depending on uh, ancestors, um, going back sometimes to 1800. Um, and then various laws were delineated as, as to what you could and could not do as a result of these judgments that were being made. Um, there, I come to find out in my research that there is a distant relative by marriage um, who, because of the Nuremberg Laws, could know she could no longer practice medicine. Um, and two years after 1935, she commits suicide because she's, she feels completely at a loss, unable to function in this society and unable also to emigrate. Um, so it, it hit 
different people in different ways. And one of the things that um, astonished me in my research was that there were as many uh, German men of Jewish descent who wound up fighting in the armed forces of, of Adolf Hitler, about 150,000 um, who did so. And some of them were drummed out of the armed forces during the course of the war as uh, regulations changed and tightened up. Um, others served with distinction. Um, if you were more than half Jewish, you weren't likely, of course, to, to serve, but this still did happen. Um, and while very early in the Third Reich, there were dispensations made for German men who had served in World War I with distinction, if they were Jewish, um, those dispensations gradually fell away as the Nazi regime began to establish itself. So it was a, for me to sit here and tell you what the Nuremberg Laws meant and the various um, knock-on effects of them, it, it, it's really too much for a two-minute answer. But um, as they affected my father and my grandfather, it, it left them in this weird limbo where they, they were considered um, not entirely of the German race and nation, um, but, but still of, of use to the, um, to the regime, at least in my dad's case anyway, to, to go out and, and bear arms and fight. And the reason that I ask is I, it, I'm always fascinated by the actual mechanics of authoritarianism that, you know, you don't just wake up one day and your country is uh, authoritarian. It happens incrementally. It happens through very carefully uh, designed laws. And, um, you know, then you wake up some years into this and find that the web cast by these various incremental laws like the Nuremberg laws suddenly have ensnared you in, you know, in authoritarian regime. So, uh, you know, it's old history, but it's new history. And that's one of the things, uh, uh, sort of a back story to your book is you're in Germany in 2013, 17, researching this. This is a moment when Germany under Chancellor Angela Merkel is allowing in waves of refugees, uh, many from the Middle East, from the wars in the Middle East, uh, from Syria and, and other places. And you're seeing the far right in Germany growing stronger and stronger. And it's also when Donald Trump is in the first year of his presidency, beginning to implement uh, various exclusionary laws aimed at immigrants. So you're seeing the rise of the far right in Germany, the rise of the far right in the United States where you live. What does it make you thinking as you're studying Nazism from the 1930s and watching what is going on in the world around you? Well, I'm trying very, very hard not to make analogies and comparisons between Germany in the 30s and certainly the US today. Um, I told myself when I went over that I would not fall into that trap. Uh, I felt it would be irresponsible. Um, and then by the end of my stay there, it was hard not to start drawing those comparisons um, and not to, not to do so felt to be the irresponsible course of action. Um, yeah, the, it, it's interesting that um, you had the rise of the far right in Germany, as you point out, as well as in the US, but then the governments in Washington and Berlin were were so drastically different. It's what led me to, to say probably very provocatively in the book that 
by the end of my year in Germany, I felt that Germany was doing a better job of being America than America was at that moment. And it's because Angela Merkel did the thing that until now we would always assume an American president would do. That is throw open the doors of America to, to the people we, according to the plaque on the base of the Statue of Liberty, are always urging to come settle on our shores, as my grandfather and father were ultimately invited to do. Um, and here she was, the sort of lone European leader doing so. Um, you know, these refugees massed at the German border, uh, many of them not Christian, um, many of them of color, uh, and doing something that no other European leader was doing while uh, we're building a wall on our southern border. And there's all sorts of really hostile and inflammatory rhetoric coming out of Washington. So um, that to me was the biggest difference. The other big difference between Germany and the US that struck me during that year was there seemed to be this hard ceiling uh, on the far right support at about 13%. So in their parliamentary system in Germany, yes, the AFD, this far right party becomes the opposition party but does so with only 13% of support in that particular election. Whereas the support for Trump and some of his policies are maybe a factor of two and a half to three of that. Uh, and that to me, because we don't have the fail safes in our system, the way the German constitution as written in the late forties after the Nazi catastrophe has written into their system, all sorts of things that would prevent authoritarianism or proto-fascism um, or subversion of American ideals or whatever it might be from, from gaining a foothold. So it, it was hard, I, again, I'm not trying to gainsay the, the purchase that the right wing has on the German system and German society today, it's there. Um, there's been some great reporting about how it's festering in the police and the security services, which is extremely uh, worrisome, but I look at what's going on and certainly the events of January 6th and thereafter have me very concerned for the US. So what I thought was going to be this historical exploration of Germany and these particularities of the German experience and how they're dealing with their present because of their past, it was impossible for, for the United States not to seep into this whole thing. So it's this kind of transatlantic um, uh, exercise on my part. And, and because my dad and my grandfather were both German born, became American citizens, it just seems like the order of the day for me when I take it up. Hmm. I want to go back into the story of your family in end papers. And there is a moment when your grandfather, Kurt, who is um, a successful book publisher in Germany and goes on in the United States to become the founder of a uh, a well-known imprint, uh, Pantheon Books. Um, Kurt sees two seminal events that are burned into history. One is the Reichstag fire. That's the burning of the parliament building that has not been conclusively attributed to Hitler, but many people assume it was uh, the Nazis who did that to provoke a crisis. And Kristallnacht, the, the night of broken glass, where the Nazis went around breaking the windows and synagogues and Jewish-owned businesses really to terrorize Jews. And your grandfather, Kurt, sees this and says, we're leaving. 
Meanwhile, another image burned into our, our consciousness is that of book burning in Germany. And your father, Nico, as a member of the Hitler Youth, may well have been among those who were setting fire to piles of books, including his own father's books. That is just an incredible image. Um, so I have two questions uh, out of that. One is, how did your grandfather, Kurt, know that it was time to flee? Because, of course, the penalty for waiting, as we learn, uh, it was, was high. People, many Jews uh, died. Um, and this image of your father burning the books of his grandfather, um, just how do you, how do you uh, wrap your head around that? Well, first, I should say I, I have no evidence that my dad, in going to Wednesday night meetings at his boarding school in rural Bavaria, that he, he certainly wasn't on Babelplatz in Berlin when the most famous book burning took place, where the great German writer Erich Kessner actually showed up in a trench coat and saw his own books being burned um, and then was recognized by somebody in the crowd and, and quickly spirited himself away as a result. Um, my grandfather, he was not, um, at, at the time that he decided to leave, he was not in the crosshairs of the regime because the Nazis hadn't yet consolidated their power. So the story as it's told by my step-grandmother is that they are in Berlin because he is hoping that there might be a chance to get a job with the cultural ministry uh, before the Nazis take over. Um, and he's been interviewing for this job and after the Reichstag burns, they're listening to the radio and they hear Hermann Goering, one of the top Nazis, ranting. And he turns to my step-grandmother and says, these are madmen, pack. So he becomes, with my step-grandmother, um, an immigrant of conviction, essentially. So this is 33. Uh, they leave first for London where they get married. And then the next six, seven years are spent on the run through... France and Italy mostly, um, sometimes just a step ahead of the posse. And he ultimately does get in the crosshairs of the regime. He can't get his passport renewed um, because he is a Kultur Bolshevik, basically somebody who is publishing exactly these authors whose books are being burned. Um, my dad at that point is not, he, he is not a rabid, uh, SS or SA member. He's a, he's a Hitler youth kid on Wednesday nights who's mostly interested in building theater sets and um, doing drawing and attending this boarding school in rural Bavaria where the headmaster, by all accounts, not just to my dad's, was trying to um, foil the regime where he could very strategically, not always successfully either. Um, but that irony you point out, which is that um, young men in brown uniforms, and that's my dad, were leading these, you know, not just book burnings, but the pillaging on Kristallnacht is absolutely the case. So it was immersing myself in the research and being able to lay down parallel chronologies and seeing that while my grandfather is disembarking in New York after fleeing through Portugal, um, uh, Vichy France and the Nazis, uh, my dad is literally participating in the invasion of the Soviet Union. Um, these two things are happening at precisely the same time, and they're unable 
to be in touch with each other as soon as um, December of 41 passes and the U.S. is drawn into the conflict with the Axis powers. So again and again, I mean, my, there's a letter that my grandmother sends to a friend. My step-grandmother sends this letter from New York to a friend talking about how since the war began, the U.S. has entered the war. Um, she loves this American practicality. And there's no uh, sentimentality about collateral damage. They're just prosecuting the war and trying to bring it to a quick and tidy conclusion and to realize that at that very time, my aunt has a newborn in a German city called Freiburg and will soon be bombed out of her apartment and that my dad is on the Russian front. So it was in reading that letter and putting it alongside the historical context that I first had really driven home to me um, how my family was, was ripped apart, how these historical forces took my grandfather in this one place to find safety and dragooned my dad east um, and in, into, uh, he was very lucky that at the time he was in the east, uh, the Nazis were on the front foot, um, but that he would very much be in harm's way for the balance of the war. You leave, I mentioned the breadcrumbs that are the, these wonderful teasers throughout the book. And one of them is a letter that you discover in a box of, in, in a shoebox, I guess, of your father's um, belongings. And it is postmarked from Auschwitz, the notorious death camp that the Nazis ran. Um, you know, I'm I'm waiting as I'm reading there for the other shoe to drop. It seems you are suggesting this is just kind of an unanswerable. Was he involved in Auschwitz? Is there some part of the story that you don't know, but you have this horrible fear you might discover? You know, my my dad told me about going through Auschwitz um, overnighting there once when he was en route between the East and Central Europe. Um, and yeah, I suppose in terms of what's absolutely knowable, I don't know for a fact that he wasn't involved in something there, though that's not what he put the uniform on to do. Um, if he passed through there, was he aware of what was going on? Well, he told me he wasn't. Um, and. What can I go on? I can't test that assertion of his against anything. Yeah. Um, he told me he remembers seeing people in uh, uniforms and trucks being driven on the campgrounds, and he assumed they were forced laborers. And there was a, a huge um, forced labor component to the whole Auschwitz-Birkenau complex. Um, that's what my dad tells me. But the book is... And not just because I'm hedging my bets, but because I honestly, there were unanswerable questions. And the book is full of not just breadcrumbs, but um, but these lacunae, you know, just, just places that we can't fill with an answer. And, and the book really ends that way, spoiler alert, um, because I, I, could, I could find what I could find, but there were things that I couldn't. And what could I do? I could take my dad's word. Um, now, he said he did not know of the atrocities, and I try to persuade myself that, oh, he was serving on, on the Eastern Front, maybe back home word had le leaked out. Um, and I've heard from other Germans who've spoken to their parents who lived through that time who have said that, oh, yes, 
people knew. You almost had to willfully not want to know, not to know. Um, and so I, it, I don't know how to adjudicate that, David. That's a very, very difficult um, set of facts. Um, but that my dad was really a, a camp guard in Auschwitz? No, he was not. He, he was implicated in plenty of things. Um, probably the most disturbing thing that I could pin down was because he was an invading and occupying soldier in Eastern Europe, who ate his rations, he was party to something that was hatched in the Berlin bureaucracy called the Hunger Plan, which was to intentionally starve Slavs, Jews, Soviet prisoners, um, by taking all the food that you would find in a place like the Ukraine, the famous bread basket of the Soviet Union, and the soldiers would live off the land and any surplus would be sent back to the Reich to feed civilian populations so they wouldn't get restless. Um, but the point was to intentionally starve um, the people whose land you were occupying. And my dad was party to that, and that was genocide. Um, and for me, the great lesson in that is just how quickly and easily you can slip into that. Your complicity can kind of enshroud you um, when, if you have a democracy or you have some of these protections and fail-safes in place, you're, you're not working um, 24 seven to keep them intact. And Germany didn't have a tradition of democracy. It was the Weimar Republic, which was weak, um, which was constantly being undermined. This was um, the brief democracy that existed between World Wars One and Two, and whose collapse led to the rise of Nazism. Exactly. And was immediately preceded by the Kaiserreich, the monarchy. So you had um, Imperial Germany, and then you had Nazi Germany, and democracy did not have a good name based on the fecklessness of Weimar. And of course, there were all sorts of other factors, the hyperinflation, the reparations exacted by the Allies after they won World War One. all these things we've gone over and over in history. But um, Germany didn't have a tradition of democracy the way, say, the French did or the United States did dating back to the 18th century. And um, here we have this just terrific example of what happens when uh, when into that vacuum something horrible and vengeful rushes. Your family is also um, engaged in the world of Nazi Germany. On the other side, your grandfather... Uh, I hope I'm not getting these wrong, but it, you're a descendant of the Merck family, the Merck Pharmaceuticals. Your grandfather was George Merck. Is that do I have that right? Uh, the yeah, founder of Merck Pharmaceuticals. Well, there, it's it gets complicated because there was a cousin way back in the 19th century came to the U.S. and founded what we know in the U.S. today is the U.S. Merck. It's the German Mercks that I'm most directly. Um, descended from and it it was my grandmother who was who was a merc okay and what do we know what did you learn about the role of merc uh, in nazi in the nazi regime so i did not know this when i went over and i only really learned much of it because modern day merc kind of much like modern day germany uh, ordered up a full accounting uh, as part of its 350th anniversary of the company's role in the Third Reich. And it's much more extensive in its collaboration with the Nazi regime than it ever let on. 
um, not just pharmaceuticals, but also chemicals. So on the pharmaceutical side, there was cocaine, uh, there was an opioid called Eucadol, both of which made their way into the bloodstream of Adolf Hitler. Um, and I try to figure out whether these stimulants and, and drugs somehow prolonged his life or addled him in some way that made him even more frightening than he was. Um, and can't really conclusively uh, come up with anything there, except that uh, there was this role on the pharmaceutical side. On the chemical side, it turns out, um, there was much more uh, of a supply of rocket fuel, for instance, to armaments factories than had previously been known. Indeed, in the same way that some big German industrial companies were broken up by the Allies after the war because of their collaboration with the regime, uh, the feeling in this company history is that if the extent of Merck Chemical's involvement in the Nazi war effort had been known at the time of the reckoning right after the war, that, that this company probably would have been divested from the family. And um, some of my dad's wealth um, that you know, I've inherited uh, would not have made it to him in those subsequent uh, decades after World War II. So very, very sobering stuff. And um, so you have coming down on that Merck side, th this intimacy with the regime, even as coming down on my dad's father's side, this kind of cultural defiance of the regime. Um, so a family that was very much pulled in two different directions. These worlds uh, kind of come crashing together in your life when you're assigned uh, by Sports Illustrated to preview the 2004 Olympic Games, you were assigned to report on the now infamous 1972 Munich Games, which of course uh, are remembered for the massacre by the Black September terrorist groups of the Israeli Olympic athletes. So you go back to Germany in the early 2000s there to um, kind of dig up this history. Um, what emotions did that elicit for you going back to Germany? And, and what's the connection between that and you writing this book and papers? There's so much to talk about in that question. And thanks for posing it. I, um, I think most immediately when I got that assignment, and again, the idea was, okay, the Athens Olympics are going to be the first Olympics after 9-11. So there was great curiosity. What, what have we learned about keeping the game safe? with 72 in Munich being the classic example of games that were not safe. And Athens um, was the 2004 Olympics that you're previewing. Correct. And that was, and that was the news peg too. So the, the piece ran in, in 2002. So it's the 30 year round number anniversary of the Munich games. Um, but I, the very first reaction was I watched those games. Those were the first games where I was really a sentient. I guess I was 15 years old and I, I watched them as an American kid in a basement of a house in New Jersey um, with, with feeling a real kind of patriotic investment in it as an American kid. And um, at the same time, knowing that my dad's sister, my aunt and her husband, my uncle lived in Munich, my cousins were over there and I'd visited and it was, um, I remember my, 
my uncle taking me to the Olympic Park and pointing out the undulations in the ground and how that was all rubble from the war that had been bulldozed. That's how they got these hills. Um, and, and the irony, of course, in that. Um, but I think in with the passage of time and recreating everything that happened during those horrible days when Black Septemberists invaded the village and took the hostages and killed a few at the outset. And then there was this horrible um, shootout at the airport. Um, and then to discover a police psychologist that had been retained by the organizing committee to help with security, to try to get in the heads of, of terrorists, oh, if they wanted to attack the games, what might they do? And how he had actually envisioned this very scenario. He came up with 30 some scenarios and this was one of them. And he'd basically been dismissed because the Germans were so intent in 1972 on turning over New Leaf. This is the new Germany, all that stuff is in the past. And then for this to happen, not just to happen, but to happen to the Israeli delegation, um, to me, there, there, were, there were lessons for history and how we process history, just sitting there in plain sight in the story. And I didn't really have license in the piece I did for the magazine back in 02 um, to get into this. But for the purposes of end papers, I do reflect in the book about sometimes you can learn the lessons of history too well. So if somebody comes to you who's credentialed and says, you're opening yourself up to this horrific eventuality, you need to guard against it. And you send that person packing and say, well, we don't want your, we want happy talk. We don't want any of that. These, these are gonna be the carefree games. Um, you've learned that lesson of history too well. You're trying too hard to banish the ghosts of the past. And what you really need to do is process it as, as a caution that, History is doing you a favor here and you need to heed it. You need to listen to it and just don't abandon your common sense. And um, history plays tricks on us. I mean, I think even as as we sit here trying to process what's going on in the United States now and voting rights under threat and so forth, we can outthink ourselves, but we can also just look at what's going on and see it for what it is and realize that it's a it's a cold and brutal world out there, and, and we need to take threats that are threats seriously. Hmm. Um, I want to move on to talk about some of your other writings. Um, you have been a prolific chronicler, uh, particularly in the world of sports and particularly in the world of basketball, um, which I've greatly appreciated. I have uh, your book, The Audacity of Hoop, which is about the role of basketball in the Obama years. And um you know, many people uh, will know it for its wonderful photos by the former White House photographer, Pete Souza, but it's also a lot of your writing. Um, talk about the role of basketball in Obama's rise and during his presidency. It had greater meaning than just the fact that he'd blow off steam by shooting hoops. I think it did. I mean, I, certainly his childhood um, and he speaks openly about this. Growing up in Hawaii, um, where there's plenty of ethnic diversity, just not many African-Americans, he's being raised for the most part by grandparents, a white couple from Kansas originally. And basketball gave him an entree into African-American culture. And he's talked very frankly about it. His dad, who had such a, a light footprint in his life, actually gave him a basketball as a Christmas gift. 
And the symbolism of that, um, I think he's taken with him into adulthood. Um, and then um, when he moves to, uh, he goes off to law school, he moves to, um, to Chicago to start his career as an organizer there, basketball and pickup basketball is the way he makes friends. And even in the case of Arne Duncan, this future secretary of education, um, somebody who would be a partner of his in governing. Um, and then in the, um, in the White House, uh, interestingly, he, he figured out ways to use basketball as this kind of lever and um, certainly in statecraft, uh, projecting American soft power overseas. He was very adept at that, but also things like, um, oh, mobilizing support and getting people to sign up for the Affordable Care Act. Um, it was pretty much under the radar, but the very populations that the White House was so intent on signing up, um, young, minorities, uh, probably without coverage to begin with, tend to follow the NBA. So when you have a Kobe Bryant or a LeBron James tweeting out, you know, the smart move is to go get coverage, you know, go to the exchanges, you can buy your coverage and, and get subsidies if you can't afford it. Um, that made a huge difference in hitting some of their targets when the fate of the law was kind of hanging in the balance. So when I started working on that book, I didn't know the extent to which uh, basketball had played this kind of behind the scenes role in, in actual governance. Um, and yes, he would run off with his secret service detail and some friends and, and blow off steam, as you say, and they converted the White House tennis court to a basketball court. Um, and in the early days of that first term, he would invite Congress people of both parties over and they would they would play um, mixed teams. Um, it's it seems like a halcyon days gone by, doesn't it? Um, but yeah, it was really striking to me just how that thread of the game ran unbroken through his life. And um, I think it's going to become only more striking as we look back on him and his story and his time in office. Um, how the game, yeah, we had golf with Eisenhower and Gerald Ford had played football at Michigan and so forth. But um, I don't know that there was, there's ever been a case of a president in a sport where the two have been quite so commingled. Did you spend any time with Obama in working on this book? I didn't. I, I put the request in. He's a busy man. <laughs> um, but I did get wonderful cooperation from, uh, from Pete Souza, who dug out a handful of uh, photos that hadn't been put on the, the Flickr feed from the White House, uh, including one, it's my favorite photo in the book. Um, he's dribbling a basketball with his two daughters uh, up a floor and one on each side. And I couldn't help but notice that his daughters are both dribbling with their left hand. And one of the things Obama had said over the years was, he he never became a better player because he was all left-handed. He's a natural left-hander. And he's mused that perhaps if his father had been around and taken him out into the driveway or the park, he would have taught him that you need to develop your offhand. It's the kind of thing that fathers work with their sons on. And here was this thing that Obama seemed to be doing with his daughters, working on their offhand. And it just kind of it took his own past and spun it fast forward here to the to the future of his of his two girls, and um, I'm very grateful to Pete Souza because the White House had a, a a strict rule about not wanting photos of the girls appearing in public places, 
And I think Pete went to Michelle Obama. I'm sure she would be the one who would make the call on this and got permission uh, to be able to use those images in the book. And I, I just felt that it was such a, such a human um, part of the story and very mm-hmm. subtle, um, but I was very, very grateful. So even though I didn't get that interview, uh, the Great White Whale interview, I, I did feel that there was enough wind in my sails from the White House that uh, I could tell the story properly. What was Obama's influence on the NBA? And, and that has particular meaning now because, you know, during the Trump years, as sports teams would get invited to go to the White House, the championship teams, uh, from, you know, hockey, baseball, football, basketball, you know, this became a moment of reckoning. Uh, which players would go? Would the teams accept? And the NBA really got out in front as being, you know, the most progressive and the most active in its confrontation with Trump. Do you see Obama's influence there? Well, I think Obama definitely catalyzed the engagement of that generation of NBA players with public issues and public life. There are certainly other factors. I mean, social media turned every NBA player into, into their, became a publisher, essentially. Um, they had this huge soapbox. And, but the Obama campaign, I mean, I remember Baron Davis did fundraisers for Obama. There was huge excitement in the league. And the league office wasn't stupid. They realized that this guy's young. He loves the game. He's known around the world. There were all these touch points that, that they were going to engage with. And I think what's, what happened after Obama left office is you simply had this complete transformation that had already occurred as a result of that Obama era where NBA players and WNBA players, to a greater extent even, um, they were not going to suddenly, you know, crawl under a rock again. They had been given the tools. They they could see that there was an impact that they were having. Um, you know, I'm sure that Kobe Bryant and LeBron James realized that, yeah, we, we actually helped make the, the Affordable Care Act a success. And uh, it wasn't it wasn't going to just just disappear. And, you know, there was a paradigm in the 90s with Jordan in the late 80s, the, the Jerry Maguire was a hit movie and just show me the money and uh, Republicans buy sneakers too, as we heard in the last dance. Uh, Horace Grant heard it said on the bus. Um, and but, but you mentioned Michael Jordan. He famously um, shied away from politics. Well, precisely, precisely. And, and that paradigm, the Jordan paradigm, um, it, it just got overtaken. And whether it was primarily Obama or was Obama interacting with with a handful of players, I, I think Kobe Kobe Bryant certainly won, but LeBron James maybe even more so, particularly the way he was outspoken in the aftermath of Trayvon Martin's death um, and the, the entire Miami Heat team posing for photos all wearing hoodies. Um, all that stuff, I think, it was going to have a life even beyond the Obama presidency. And then it, it ran up against, you know, Trump calling NFL players who take a knee, calling them sons of bitches. And, you know, now you watch a European soccer game, they all take a knee. Mm. Um, so these, these things get out of the bottle and there's really no containing them. So many Vermonters know you, um, probably for your writings for sports illustrated, 
but more likely they know you as the former owner of Vermont's own basketball team, semi-pro basketball team, the Frost Heaves, um, which I certainly enjoyed many Frost Heaves games at the Barry Odd. Uh, my son had some birthday parties there. It really was part of the life of the community. What moved you to go from being a reporter on the sidelines to the front office, as it were, and to buy a basketball team? So I guess by the mid-2000s, there was the web was becoming a thing. And I was hearing from editors in the office, uh, content, we need content. And um, <laughs> I happened to be out on a, an assignment. I was interviewing a guy named Marty Blake, who was the NBA scouting director at the time prided himself on knowing the whereabouts of anybody with the snowball's chance of making the NBA and having a little dossier opened on whoever that person was. And he was complaining to me as I interviewed him about this reconstituted American Basketball Association that had, you know, if it's Tuesday, there are 120 franchises. If it's the following Monday, they're down to 78. And uh, I can't even get a schedule or a roster out of the league office. Apparently it costs $5,000 to get a franchise. So some light bulb went off uh, over my head. And I mentioned to editors that you know, how easy it would be to start a team in Vermont, come to find out their, the market rights to Vermont were still available. So with some encouragement and maybe 15 or 20 uh, people who opened their wallets around the state who really love basketball and love Vermont, we were able to get the thing off the ground. and. There was plenty of content, but what I didn't realize is it was the kind of content that would so overwhelm me and my wife, Vanessa, that um, there wouldn't be a chance to do a whole lot of writing about it uh, for SI. It was all we could do to keep the lights on and make sure that the opponent for Saturday night would show up at the odd. Um, uh, so it was three really intense uh, years, but not a day goes by without some encounter with somebody who was touched by it, the whole adventure we had. and. Uh, just last week, I was in Cabot visiting with Will Voigt, uh, who's gone on to a really successful coaching career after his three seasons with us. He um, just finished up a stint with the Angolan national team and took Nigeria before that to the Rio Olympics. Mm. Um, and a whole bunch of our players, John Bryant, who for three years was our probably our most popular player, is now he was an assistant with the Sixers and is now on the Chicago Bulls bench. So. Mm. Um, it is so exciting to to see that people are waving the Frosty's banner all over the world still. So in three decades of writing, mostly about sports, what article, you know, are you proudest of? Oh, um, I guess if, if you're going to use that word, I, I would have to think of, um, you know, it's hard not to think of our business as um, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable somehow. And I I am proud that I was able to maintain my skepticism while covering the Tour de France enough that um, at a time when people really wanted to believe uh, that it was all on the level. When Lance Armstrong was doping and winning. In fact, yeah, and they all were, but Armstrong particularly, because he took advantage of the naivete of Americans uh, he took advantage of this horrible disease that, yes, he suffered from and he overcame um, and that he came back to compete again is an amazing story. But at the same time, uh, 
the people's lives he destroyed in the pursuit of all that. Um, I think we're still totaling up the damages. Um, and I cannot take credit certainly for, for exposing Armstrong, but um, when it all came to light, uh, I did some work just kind of pulling the whole story together with some perspective that I like to think will stand the test this time. It's sort of, here is, here is the lie that we were all subjected to over this long stretch. And here are all the audacious things he claimed and said and tried to fool us with. And here, in fact, is what really was going on. And um, so I'm, I'm proud of that. Um, there are other stories that have been more fun. Uh, uh, there have been stories that have, that have affected me emotionally. Um, uh, I did one story about um, the guys who were the member of the 1987 Yugoslav world champion junior team, which include names that we'd recognize like Tony Kukoc and Dino Raja and Vlade Divac. And uh, they were wonderful as a United Yugoslavia. And then the war came along and they were all driven to their separate corners and some couldn't even speak to each other again. Um, and telling that story where I had to go from player to player, almost like crossing DMZs to do so, mm. um, was, was very rewarding. And I hope conveyed to the reader a little bit uh, the, the human side of what were essentially just disembodied headlines about market bombings in Sarajevo or this or that or the other thing. And um, sports can do that. Um, sports, good sports writing, I think uh, sports is kind of the public square in a way that one of those few places where we all gather around the same event, um, you know, at a time when so many of us are just atomized and follow our own um, own preferred media uh, sources. Um, and and sports is this great vernacular or idiom to to tell stories because we all understand what it's like to train hard or to win or to lose or. Um, and all of us are, are dragging our kids to, to youth sports games or, or catching the game in the high school gym, COVID permitting. And um, so that really has been the place where my interest in the world kind of intersects with my love for sports is if I can combine those two things and maybe shed a little light on something in the process. It's really gratifying. Well, Alex Wolf, I want to thank you for your writings over these many years and uh, for talking with us on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. Take care. Alexander Wolf is a former staff writer for Sports Illustrated magazine and the author of End Papers, a family story of books, war, escape, and home. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>